This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I have a new interview for you today with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, author of the new book on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. This show is not typically interfaith, but when the opportunity to read Rabbi Ruttenberg's latest book arose, I leapt at the chance. I followed her on Twitter for years and admire her work immensely. Her book, which is out now, and you can find the link to purchase it on bookshop.org to support indie bookstores as well as the show in the show notes. This book is an immensely helpful book that helps reframe what repentance, repair, and forgiveness mean in many aspects of the word, as you'll hear in the interview. Those terms are loaded for people whose faith was formed in white evangelicalism. They've often been used and abused by people in positions of authority to manipulate those they've wronged into supposedly forgiving them as a way of absolving themselves and maintaining their positions of influence. Rabbi Ruttenberg explores the value and other meanings of these words in a way that can benefit all people, regardless of their faith or lack thereof, starting with a framework that she'll explain in the interview. Before we get into it, let me tell you about how you can support this show. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can tell people about the show. You can also support the show by subscribing to my Substack publication, The Post-Evangelical Post. You can subscribe for free or upgrade to paid at either 4 6 or $8 a month, and get access to ad-free podcast feeds, Discord, and more. I donate 25% of my net revenue to the Religious Exemption Accountability Project and White Homework. Post is where you'll find all my writing and podcasting. You can learn more at postevangelicalpost.com. Exvangelical is a production of the Postevangelical Post LLC. This interview was edited by Podcast Audio. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest today is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. Rabbi Ruttenberg is an award-winning author and writer and has been named a faith leader to watch by the Center for American Progress. She is also the author of multiple books and her latest, On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World, releases this month. She is also an incredible Twitter follow and the author of the Life is a Sacred Text newsletter. Rabbi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to meet you. It's uh it's wonderful to have you on the show. This is actually, as I was mentioning in our, our pre-show chatter, uh, this is one of my first interfaith discussions, and I'm humbled to have you on the show because I've followed you on Twitter and elsewhere for so long, and it's great to to talk about this book. It's it's a book that's going to stay with me for a long time as something that I just know that I will need to ruminate on and come back to, and I, I nonetheless... Where we usually start, as I as I mentioned to you previously, uh, where we usually start these shows is by these interviews is just by grounding these conversations in my guest backgrounds. So, 
while both I and my audience come from more conservative Christian backgrounds and have gone elsewhere, I and I certainly want to acknowledge the sort of supersessionist assumptions and prejudices that are inherent in those traditions that we, that I and many of my guests and listeners come from. I'd love to hear the story of your own story uh, within Judaism and what brought you to the type of work that you do now. It's um, probably the the reverse in many ways from uh, a lot of you folks. I grew up sort of with the sort of American suburban Jewish background. That is to say, we knew we were Jewish. We had a, a strong Jewish cultural identity. We went to synagogue a couple times a year for the major holidays. We had a Passover Seder. Of course, I had a bat mitzvah. It wasn't deeply spiritually meaningful. It was like, here, say these words. Okay, I said the words. We had a party. Like, you know, being Jewish was part of what I was my thing. And I was interested in philosophy. And at age 13, I just like, <laughs> who's looking around at all of the people at our Rosh Hashanah, our New Year services, like standing up. And then the rabbi would say, you know, sit down, everybody would sit down. And I was just like, you know, Marx was right about opiates. I'm a, you know, sophisticated 13 year old who's seen a lot of the world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> decided I was an atheist because I, you know, the dude in the sky with the pair of dice deciding about things just was not it. And I was not like those sheep. I thought it was very sophisticated. And so I became, you know, I sort of got very interested in philosophy and through high school and early college, thought that that was what I was pursuing. And somehow by accident in college, discovered the religious studies department and found it fascinating because it was like history and anthropology and literature and, you know, poetry and puzzles and all of these things kind of wrapped up into one. And, you know, I could be like, this is what people believe and this is what really happened. And I thought it was great. And so I became a religious studies major and was reading, I was an atheist, but I was reading all of these books about the, you know, ritual theory and what it meant and the, you know, history of the second temple and all. It's really, really fun. And then my mother got cancer. And I ran her hospice. And when she died, I, you know, and that's that semester when she was dying, I was running around asking people if you could take a Kierkegaardian leap of faith without actually believing in God. And, and when she died, we did everything Jewishly because we're Jews, right? Like, of course, you're going to do this is how you do a funeral. And after the funeral, everybody comes to your house and they bring food and you do something called sitting Shiva, which is basically staying at home and people come to you for seven days. And we went to synagogue to say the mourner's prayer like you do. And it's traditional for that when a parent dies, you go to synagogue and you say the mourner's prayer for 11 months. And I don't know. I just went to synagogue on Friday nights to say the mourner's prayer because this is what you do. And it's, you know, in Judaism, the the sort of cultural and the religious, it's not that whole like belief thing. Like, in you know, in Christianity, you believe or you don't. And that's what makes you a Christian. And in Judaism, we're, it's a people. We're a people. It's peoplehood is the thing that makes you a Jew. It's like having a citizenship. It's a passport. Judaism is the religion of the Jewish people. But that it's it's our it's a cultural expression. It's a you know it doesn't you can go to synagogue and not be sure what you're saying, and it, it's okay. And a lot of people do. 
So I was like, I'm fine. I'm going to go say the mourner's prayer because I don't know. Because this is what you do. And I, my life was falling apart. And I don't know what else I'm going to do. And and I open and, I, you know, kind of going again and again, I open up the prayer book. And I was like, after all this time re- reading ritual theory, and I was like, oh, this isn't stupid. <laughs> oh, I, I get what's happening here now. And at the same time, all in grief, all of I was open and all of this, what I'd now describe as spiritual or mystical stuff started happening to me or or I was able to perceive it or something. And I went looking to try to find language for it. And, and I'm condensing, you know, three or four years into a sense or two and, you know, sort of slowly figured out that 2000 years of nuanced theology also didn't think that God was a man on the mountain. That there were other people who thought that, you know, the great oneness of everything and interconnected beingness of rising and falling and creation and destruction wasn't sitting in the sky with a pair of dice deciding if you were going to get a good parking spot or not, right? Like, oh. And then I moved to San Francisco and was like, okay, I guess I like services enough to want a synagogue. And I stumbled into a synagogue with a rabbi named Alan Liu. And I sat down and he started giving a sermon and, <laughs> and you know, and kind of the rest is history. It's his fault that I'm a rabbi. <laughs> I mean, that, that, uh, that's a very powerful story as, as far as like discovering different sort of depths to the tradition that you were born into. Uh, and I mean, it is certainly grief is absolutely a catalyst for for many people to discover if not even as they change maybe their cosmology or whatever like uh, they discover the usefulness of spirituality and spiritual community it is it is one of the oldest stories in the book mm-hmm. <laughs> yes <laughs> you know i i'm like you know i i it's it is almost cliche but it, it, you know that is my story i went i wasn't looking but you know I I stumbled into the room next door, so to speak. Yeah. It turns yeah. out there were a lot of goodies for, for me there. Right. And you eventually ended up writing a memoir about much of that experience from this this journey from being a teenage atheist to uh, <laughs> to a rabbi. And now you now occupy a more sort of progressive interfaith space online. What led you to continuing to invest in doing a lot of this more public facing work? Because there's, there is the element of discovering this thing that helps sustain you for yourself. But what drove you to want to be engaged in the public sphere as a spiritual leader, as a, as, as a representative of one aspect of Judaism? I mean, listen, I was a writer before I was religious and, you know, I was, been writing my whole life. And when I got out of college, I very quickly got, fell into a group of freelance writers who kind of mentored me and was writing freelance very early out of college. Thank you, you know, San Francisco, late 90s tech boom. Um, <laughs> there was just like money falling from the sky. <laughs> Hi, you know, would you like a thousand dollars to write 14 words? No, not 14 words, 17 words, 18 words, <laughs> <laughs> um, not 14 words. I, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. So I was always writing. And then um, I stumbled into this, like, you know, like literally like 
ran into a feminist press that was publishing a bunch of my friends and kind of totally out of the blue kind of pitched them a next generation of Jewish feminism book because I was feeling like very alone. Like I'd go to synagogue, you know, and I was like all alone in this, like there's a conservative synagogue with all of these lawyers in their thirties and forties. And there's like me with my wallet chain and my bleached blonde hair. And, you know, I was like 23. And I had all these questions that I felt like weren't being met, you know, like mm. I was reading mm -hmm. feminists who were 20, 30 years older than me. And they, I had different questions than they did. And so I literally pitched an anthology to find the answers to my questions. <laughs> and, you know, kind of one thing led to another, you know, and then, uh, you know, that sort of led to other things that led to other things. And so I was always writing articles. And with Twitter, I got on there to learn and to follow other people because there are a lot. It's like an amazing learning space to get out of your bubble and to find uh, like brilliant people whose lives are really different from yours who have amazing things to say that from other perspectives and, you know, and I, I then, you know, and I started jamming and I don't know, I, it's just quickly started figuring out that is also a place where I could be teaching Torah and that there was interest in that. And it's like, it's fun for me and other people like it. So fabulous. I'm going to, you know, like, I'm going to keep doing that. Yeah. Like it's what I do. I, I went to rabbinical school in many ways because I'm a writer and an educator and rabbi means teacher. So yeah. And it, I mean, the, it is a, a very much a written tradition in that way. Uh, just <laughs> so, people so many <laughs> <laughs> people in the book, people in the tweet. Something. <laughs> yeah. And so you've written several books and your most recent one uh, is titled on repentance and repair, making amends and, and a, an unapologetic world. And just by your sort of brief summary of your biography, you've been, you know, online and in these sort of on online mediated spaces for a long time. And <laughs> as anyone knows who's tried to exist on the internet or tried to contribute to a conversation, whether or not it's a default public place like Twitter or Instagram or elsewhere, it's a uh, it can be an unforgiving sort of place, or at least a place in which judgment is uh, meted out <laughs> on a very rapid basis. So it it is a very it's a very timely book because it's it seems to be something that, uh, as you say in the early chapters, is not something that our American society does well. This <laughs> this idea of centering even the very idea of repair and repentance. And I want to get into eventually some of the ways in which that surfaces in traditions similar to my own. But I want to first talk about, and I apologize, I want to make sure I say, I haven't actually said the name out loud, Maimonides. Is that right? Damn, yes. yes. You got it on the first try. R straight right out of the gate. Okay. Yeah. So your your book uses the a Jewish scholar from the 11th or 12th century. Please correct me. Um, I mean, both, right? You know, <laughs> born, died, right? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> and his it. his work on his his work on on these on this topic of repair, repentance, and forgiveness. So, why is his work in particular so useful for us in our current context? 
So a little background on Maimonides. So he was, he was born in what's now Spain under one caliphate. And then another caliphate came and conquered and they were less friendly to Jews. So there's no Christians. This is a completely Muslim context. And so he left Cordoba and wound up eventually landing in Egypt. Among other things, he was a physician and wound up becoming the physician to the Sultan, Suleiman. And he was a philosopher and a Torah scholar and a commentator and a very busy guy. And I mean, like, literally, there's a no, like, there's a letter that he writes to a friend of his who wants to come visit. And 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 the friend says, uh, he's like, you could come visit, but here's my day. I'm up at dawn and then I go to the court and then I, <laughs> and then I come back and there are all these Jews waiting in line to get treated because they need their doctor. And then... You know, and then I study Torah and then I work a little bit on, you know, the guide to the perplexed, which is this like, uh, you know, incredible philosophical treatise. And then I did that. And then I like barely get time for a meal. And then, you know, and it's like, (laughs) (laughs) take a nap. (laughs) But he, what he did was, I mean, it was revolutionary. He took all of these ideas that were floating around, like the Talmud is, um, is a record of, of Jewish thought that comes in a really non-linear format because it was basically the rabbis trying of, of like fifth century Babylonia trying to figure out what the right way to live Jewish law in the world would be both the Torah and the Mishnah which is like an oral tradition and there's like some intern in the back taking notes and so <laughs> when you get off track and you start telling jokes and then you you know whatever there's an anecdote and whatever so it's really like it's great for scholars it's really fun to study but Maimonides was like, people just need, some people just need to know what to do and like how to do it. <laughs> like they don't need to be like, like they just need to look it up. They don't need to be rifling through for days trying to figure out. So he created something called the Mishnah Torah. And one of the big innovations was the, the laws of repentance. And he took all of these ideas that were all over the place and ordered them in this really clean way. And, and it's so powerful. And I argue that there are these five stages that you can find in the laws of repentance that really, you know, in Judaism, we talk a lot about like the interper- the ways that they can be applied in interpersonal ways. Like if I harm you, here is the way for me to heal this relationship and to take responsibility. And the mission of this earlier oral tradition says basically you can't go to God on Yom Kippur on our day of atonement and ask for forgiveness if you hurt somebody else and you have not made it right with them. So you like, go clean up your mess. Like, don't, don't talk to me, talk to them. Like, why are you asking me for (laughs) forgiveness? Like there's somebody over there that you injured. You need to go talk, like deal with it. And so it's this very powerful process for repair and transformation where you are turning into the kind of person that doesn't do the thing anymore. And, and I realized that these five steps, which I, suppose we should lay out in a second, are applicable not only for interpersonal harm, but for harm in the public square when there's like, you know, one really famous person and, you know, there are victims, but there are also millions of witnesses who are influenced or impacted by what happens or viral tweets or institutions that cause harm or when nations cause harm to entire Mm. populations of people. Like the steps still work. 
And I kept looking for spaces where it wouldn't hold up and they kept holding up. So I just think it's really solid and powerful. Yeah. The book is, is very, uh, as a testament to that, as far as letting folks who are listening to this understand what those five steps are, would you mind sharing or summarizing them a little bit? And then we'll, then we'll get into some of the, some of the examples that you highlight within the text. Okay. So we've got step one is confession, AKA own your stuff, name what you did, name, name it without hedging, without qualifications. We don't, you know, none of what I intend, I like really intended well, we don't care. Like none of that, like what you did, like talk of like, I did this harmful thing. And often a lot of inner work that has to come to sort of let go of this story about you as the hero. Like, here's what you did. And it is praiseworthy to do confession in a more public space because it's a way of having accountability. It's a way of telling your people that you need help. Like, I am struggling with my sobriety, right? I need to go on an anti-racist uh, learning journey. I, whatever the thing is, it's, it's a way of saying like, I, I am not being the person I need to be and I need to do some work. By the way, I should stop here and say that when I say repentance, the, the Hebrew word is teshuva. It is not like, I think probably a lot of y'all have, um, you know, like repent, like this, you know, kind <laughs> of, ah! it's, it's for us, teshuva means return. It's like, come back, let's come back to who you're supposed to be as a person. Come back to connection with the divine. Connect, come back to your integrity. Come back to wholeness. Come back to where you're supposed to be. It's not somebody yelling at you. It's it's a it's an invitation to, to to return to where you were supposed to be all along. So step one is this confession, owning your stuff, which by the way, for the victim is like it's an end to the gaslighting. This really happened. You're right. Or if the victim was clear about what happened and other people didn't believe them. Like this is like validating. So it's really important. So that's step one. Step two is starting to change, right? Because if you do the harmful thing and don't change at all, you're just going to run around continuing to do the harmful thing. There's no transformation. So whether that's now you have to do some work on anti-racism. Now you have to actually like do some work in therapy. Now you need to call your sponsor. Now you need to learn about trans liberation. Now you need to call up your, you know, go to spiritual direction, go to do a deep meditation retreat and have some one-on-one -on -one time with your instructor, you know, whatever the thing is, like, this is time to do the work. Now you need to, if it's institutional harm, now you need a deep uh, review of your HR policies and procedures and change them so that that thing that you did never happens again. Now you need to, like change the the laws so that that is not a possibility anymore. I, you know, like something needs to be different. Step three, amends, right? What is the repair? How do you repair? Like you can't undo it, but what is the way to sew up that hole in the cosmos that you created? Is it mm. financial, right? Reparations? Is it donating time? Is it connecting someone to new opportunities? Is it the person you harmed wants nothing to do with you, but you can spend the rest of your life fighting for better policies and, you know, ways of being in your community? I don't know. I mean, it depends on what the thing is and what's appropriate, but you shouldn't definitely never do reparations 
at the victim. It's always in dialogue with them, right? Mm. What do you need? What would be appropriate to you? And what they need might be surprising. Like, you can't necessarily assume that you know. Like, you have to ask. Because <laughs> yeah. it might not be what you expect. Then apology. All the way down here. Finally, we get to apology. Because if you're apologizing right at the start, before you even fully get what you did, eh, you're checking a box. But now you've done the grueling work of facing who you are. And you've already started to change. And already now, and you've already heard the victim say what they need. And so this apology is flowing from an open heart that finally sees this person in their wholeness. And you finally, like, you get what you did. And this is a human person that you harmed. And so that apology is not, I'm sorry, then you mean, it's, you know, it's an open heart that, that's, you, you were hurt. And I need you to know that it matters to me that I did this to you. And I really, really have so much regret about that. And really wish I had not done that and I care about you or, you know, whatever, but it's a different kind of a feeling. And then step five is when you get to the chance of doing the thing again, you make a different choice because you have done all of this work and you are now like organic, like you're a different person. Of course, you're going to make a different choice. Mm-hmm. And you're always going to have another opportunity if you don't do the work, right? Your anger will play out in a different way if you haven't dealt with your anger. Your attachment issues will play out if you haven't dealt with your attachment issues. Your trauma will manifest and pull you, you know, you'll, you'll play act out of the space of trauma if you don't deal with it, right? <laughs> your commitment to white supremacy will continue to play out, right? You will go from first contact to the trail of tears, right? <laughs> to wounded knee, to DAPL, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like it will, you will play out the same patterns again and again and again, unless you decide that you want to be different as a nation, as an individual, whatever. So if you do the work, then a new future is possible. And I, I will contextualize, I maybe, and actually just voice this. I think for this particular audience, I think phrases like repentance and forgiveness are loaded. Um, you know, because they have been misused, they have been misused in many religious contexts, not just Christian contexts, but, but many, you you even, Mm -hmm. you even cite an example of a way in which a early on in the book in which, and, and you can, you come back to it, which I appreciate throughout the text of a, a rabbi who tried to essentially take the fast track to, forgiveness and why that was problematic. <laughs> right. What I, what I appreciate appreciated about about your work not only by delineating all these different steps but the the care you took to describe these terms and why they are still valuable even if someone is in a non or post religious context. So could you talk a little bit about that as well because you did frame this as you are grounding this in uh, Maimonides and and his his framework but then you also incorporate and appreciate the the work that's done in black and indigenous led spaces by those communities and the types of different forms of justice that they have and justice is an entirely separate thing we haven't even gotten to that yet <laughs> but just within the the individual work and the sort of you, I believe you use the term deep work and that's in the book and I think you also mentioned it in your in your summary because this is deep, personal, long-term, internal work for both 
the harm doer and the and the victim. So the book is also very centered on the concerns of of the victim of those who have been oppressed or received harm. Could you talk a, a little bit about those terms of I, I want to get to forgiveness a little bit later, but repentance and repair and what that looks like for those two different people, the person that that caused the harm and the person who received was the recipient or the victim of that harm. So like what what repentance looks like and what it entails? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think you also do a good job of 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 contextualizing why an idea that comes from a spiritual tradition like repentance is still valuable even in secular or interfaith spaces. Yeah. I mean, I really do believe that this framework is for everybody. And I don't think I, 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 people who follow me on Twitter have seen me not infrequently yelling about appropriation of Jewish stuff when that is a thing. I don't believe that all of Judaism is fair game to everybody. And I'm not, I am not like, here, take my shofar. It is a symbol that anybody can use. No, 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 that's ours. (laughs) Hands Mm -hmm. off, right? And I believe that this framework is, is, is life giving and profound and applicable to everyone. And whether you believe in God or don't, right? Whatever your religious or spiritual tradition is, I, I think that this framework of confession, start to change, amends, apology, make different choices is and can be secular, probably in a way that Maimonides would not, not appreciate. <laughs> and, and probably there will be some Orthodox men who will be cranky about the fact that I am kind of opening this door for a wider audience. But I really, 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 really believe that this work of accountability and transformation can change the world. Mm -hmm. And I want us to have that. I want our broader American society to have that. And listen, as somebody who has kind of taken on something of a repentance practice, deeply imperfectly, right? I am a human person and I am not a master of this or anything, but uh, like I'm committed to, to this as a framework and like, it's hard, but it is transformative. Like it, and I, you know, just even like getting deep into the stories in this book, like it is life changing. And like for the person who is the harm doer, it changes your life in ways that you could never have imagined, in ways that help you grow and change and become a more whole person, a more integrated person looking at, looking with curiosity at why did I cause that harm? And with empathy at the person who was harmed, instead of going, instead of pulling up those defenses and being like, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, I didn't mean it, right? And like, Trying to really care about the other person using an act of love and like the act of giving to that person and saying, you matter. And the act of self-care and saying, hey, self, you are not your best self right now. What do you need in order to get on track and to grow? It changes your life. And 
that's amazing for the person who is the harm doer because they the, the flourishing is extraordinary and they get to be agents of love and care and giving to the person who was harmed to the person yeah to their victim the person who was harmed is now not sitting there wounded and in pain with nobody taking care of them you know traumatized and re-traumatized right experiencing institutional betrayal whatever and then they walk around and are the walking wounded and then much more likely to walk around harming other people but they get the love and care that they need and deserve and right like it's just then we have the person who is harmed who gets to be more whole and validated and seen and we have the person who caused harm is now more whole and so we have two more people who are, are or communities or whatever that are more whole and so now instead of two more people who are more likely to be running around causing harm we have two more people who are going to be more likely to be healing in the world and if we can get more people like if we get everybody to start doing that just think of what's possible right mm -hmm. i just i you know let's do that <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and I, that that is one element of of your narrative that is is in, absolutely encouraging is that ultimately uh, it's not a place that is bereft of boundaries or anything like that there are you make it clear that that people are, are do their you know their proper distance and respect and through every part of this process but it is still one that has some hope <laughs> which i think is is certainly lacking in a, a lot of these conversations which which is and i i the, the way in which you utilize both examples from maimonides as well as other indigenous communities and and other traditions reminds me of a a, a book also another book by shannon valor called technology and the virtues which she mm -hmm. applies multiple virtue ethics to our current situation and there's so much to learn from these spiritual traditions that can be applied in in our current context i I would love to talk a little bit about the role that you have a chapter that's dedicated to things that occur in the public and do especially due to the sort of accelerating factor of you know, everybody uh, sheltering in place to varying degrees for over two years, just the, are the ways in which we've sort of shifted to many, many things being communicated primarily in online spaces mm -hmm. uh, i'd i'd love to to hear about how you sort of address the the different aspects of how this framework applies to things that occur in the public space especially and i do have in mind like like you do uh, directly address cancel culture uh mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that loaded term that everybody sort of uses for their own needs <laughs> and it definitely i it, it's definitely we're definitely in a period where there's not many shared definitions of things right but people but cancel culture being something that can describe an online mob or uh, you know dogpiling on twitter or instagram i'm curious especially about how that applies to those that have especially those that have outsized power and influence beyond the sort of social networks that we see as well as the types of things that we see that become like beefs that cause rifts in online communities, because to, uh, that can be a hard, you, you talk about 
us being observers of those things. And when something occurs online, sometimes you don't, you don't even know about it until days after, and then you discover it. And then there's the original beef and then there's the counter beef. And then there's the reaction to the counter beef and there's the reaction to the counter reaction to, and then it's sort of, you have to become a full-time forensic expert in order to figure out what happens sometimes, but then, but it ends up, you know, oftentimes it is a hand one or a handful of individuals that instigate something or disagree publicly. And then it becomes a public affair. I'm not sure that those are two, the same thing, but the the individual may experience them in the same way. Listen, there is, you know, we all have to be careful because there's the, it gets very easy to conflate, you know, the roles. We have to remember when we are witnesses to harm and when we are active participants in harm, it gets very easy to be reactive online mm-hmm. i i have been guilty of it myself and, we all have <laughs> we uh, yeah we you know yeah and 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 part of the work is about catching yourself when when you use that trigger finger and when your trigger finger and your non-higher impulses decide to get together and and it's about catching yourself and deleting that tweet or whatever and again Right. The, the I, confession has to be at least commensurate to the, the harm caused. Right. If you say something, you know, something happens in marriage. Right. You're not you don't necessarily have to post on Facebook what the, the argument is in a marriage. You can own fully what happened to your partner and maybe that's all that's needed. Right. But if you say something racist in a staff meeting, you need to own fully to everybody who was there, at least, what you did, either in the next staff meeting, maybe you can catch yourself right away, maybe you post it on the Slack, I don't know, but like, at least everybody who was there needs to see it. Maybe more people in the organization or or community need to know, uh, depending, right? If you post something toxic online, you need to delete it, and then I really believe fully you need to post that correction and say, I was not on my game. That was not okay. And I don't personally think you have to like, you know, and again, like owning really fully and here's maybe here's why, but not like, here's why. Cause I was acting out of my trauma, but I, you know, I think about like Dan Harmon from community who said in a podcast, like, uh, you know, what's talking about sexually harassing one of his employees, like, if I really respected women, I never would have done that. Like that kind of like own it, you know, and I don't think you necessarily have to lay out your whole amends process in the tweet, because that mm-hmm. is a later stage in the process. We'll talk confession is confession, but you can. But yeah, if you do the thing that is harmful online, you have to own it fully online and yes it's embarrassing too bad like part of being an adult is that you can then model for other people that you are a human person and you use the trigger finger and you then give people permission to also own their mistakes and it it can be powerful and you recognize that you too like you work that that chuva muscle that turning back muscle and it comes easier the next time and when powerful people 
cause harm and are toxic, we need to hold them accountable. We need to remember that people with power need to be responsible for their actions. And sometimes they respond really well and amazingly. I think about Lizzo, for example. Is my well, you know my favorite recent example? Uh, she had she posted an ableist slur in a song, and disabled people said "ouch," and she said, "Oh, I didn't realize. I didn't. You know, my intention was never to hurt you guys. Thank you for educating me." And within 24 hours, had the song re-released without the slur. Like she, like got it. She owned it. She took the action. Boom, right? She she made the change and she's never gonna use that language again, right? And that like that's action. You know, and it's not the oh, but it's my, you know, my lyrics are so sacred, and how dare you mess with my artistry and I'm not so sure and let me meh, right? When people mean it, when people really care about not causing harm, you can tell. It's really clear. And you know. And with the beefs in the back and the forth and the, I, I, I just, I don't have a lot of patience for that. <laughs> you know, whatever you're adults, like model, model adult behavior is what I have to say about that. Maybe, maybe the, <laughs> what I, what I definitely noticed with regard to all of these different levels, whether it's interpersonal, public, institutional, national all of these different different levels is that the notion of community is constant mm-hmm. right and so maybe maybe that's the difference in that and the things like beefs they're not necessarily there's something maybe that aren't community like because there's not a shared value there's not or something shared um whether it's agreement to accountability or whatever if you know there's Internet scholars like Dana Boyd have used terms like networked publics to <laughs> describe things like social networks, which is probably more accurate because mm-hmm. we don't all have the same values and we're all yelling at each other on Twitter and elsewhere. <laughs> but but the value of community is to provide all of those things and provide those guidelines and spaces for this may be a good segue to talk about the ideas of transformative justice and some of the other restorative justice and there is one more that is escaping me in the moment. Community accountability. Yes. So could we talk a little bit about that and how how if someone is embedded in in a community that can provide those resources, how how is that a better model for this type of work? This this sort of deep work that happens and it's not something you post online. It's something that that happens in between the posts that the growth that you don't see. <laughs> right. Right. So definitions, I guess. So restorative justice is a process wherein typically two people come together and sit together and answer questions like who caused the harm and what needs to be done to address the harm. Right. And how can we how can we heal this situation and how can we move forward feeling confident that this harm won't happen again? And who who is involved? Who are the stakeholders here? And it usually involves a process called sitting in circle. I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pre-work that happens working with both harm doer and the one who is harmed. 
But eventually they come together to sit in circle to talk about where the, the team that had been working both with the harm doer to educate them and kind of get them to where they need to be and moving them through, you know, kind of facing their harm and beginning to change and right, you know, come up the beginning stages of, of the repentance process. And with the person who was harmed, thinking about what amends they would need and what would be needed to, to close this space, right? Also pieces of the repentance process. And eventually they, they come together to sit in circle and to have this time together with people who have their backs, right? With, with an accountability team and some of their people. So that's restorative justice. Transformative justice says not only how can we restore the situation to how it was, you know, like the second before the harm happened, but can, how can we get to the roots of, of why this happened and, and fix things before? Like if a harm doer actually caused this harm because they were poor and didn't have enough money and were hungry and desperate, then how can, like, we can't just, zap them back to 30 seconds before this harm happened and have them walk out of here still hungry and poor and desperate, right? That, that, that is not enough. How do we transform this person's situation, this community's situation so that there's a greater healing on, on the, this, at least the, the individual communal level, if not the, the systemic level, because that is so hard and communal accountability. So restorative justice can happen either outside the court system or inside the court system. A lot of times people will go through an RJ process as a way of addressing sentencing or, you know, lessening sentencing or part of parole or whatever. And community accountability means that no police are involved, no courts are involved. It's totally outside the American legal system. Nobody is calling the cops. Nobody wants the cops involved. So that's community accountability just means it's part of a more of an abolitionist framework. And so it's not it's not a process. It's a type of it's a way that that happens. And all of these are, are I think, really powerful ways to get to some of this repentance work that I've been talking about. That as we talk about consequences for harm, uh, you know, the American carceral system is gives us the opposite of the opportunity for repentance work. If somebody has caused what we would call criminal harm, and, you know, the number of things that are criminalized that are not harmful, right? You know, if somebody is mm -hmm. mentally ill, if someone is struggling with addiction, if somebody is carrying the wrong amount of weed on them, you know, just if somebody is black and accused of stealing a backpack and being held, you know, the whole business with bail bonds, where someone can be accused of something, they haven't even been indicted, and they're just held because they don't have the cash to get out. And um, I mean, the majority of people who are imprisoned right now are awaiting trial. They haven't even seen their day in court. They're not guilty of anything. They're not innocent or guilty of any, you know, they haven't been proven of anything. They just don't have, they're poor, and they don't have the, the poor and usually people of color who don't have the money to get out. But they know that if they, like, they usually have to plea out because if they wait for their day in trial, they're more likely to get incarcerated. I mean, the whole thing is horrific. And then once you're in, in prison, all of the stages of repentance that we've been talking about are nearly impossible. The system doesn't care about your repentance. 
They don't, they don't want accountability. They don't want your transformation. They want you to rot in a cage until you're let out and everything about the system, like it, it harms victims. It doesn't give victims what they need. They don't, doesn't give victims an answer to what happened to them. It doesn't give them closure. It doesn't give them healing. It doesn't give anybody anything that they need except for profit, profit prisons, uh, uh, you know, some money. We can talk about all of the prison labor that, that is used. I mean, you know, it's, it's capitalism. It's not, it's not justice, but. But restorative justice and transformative justice offer real possibilities for healing and transformation for both harm doer and the person harmed, assuming that it's the right process. And it has to be victim initiated, right? Not, and there, there can be places where people put pressure on the victim, like, oh, do a, do a RJ process. And it's not what the victim wants or needs. And particularly in abuse cases where there's an imbalance, like an inherent imbalance in power, mm-hmm. like RJ may never work because of the way that dynamic is. And I'm not saying that necessarily we run straight to, to cages, but we need to find other, you know, we need to, to think more expansively. Like I, I don't, I, you know, I think RJ is an extraordinary tool and I think I dream of a future with lots of other tools. Mm, yeah. Clearly the one that we use is only in, interested in meeting out punishment. <laughs> mm, yes. Yes. The punitive, punitive doesn't, isn't, uh, doesn't help anything at all. Yeah. I was hoping to, to sort of round out our conversation by again, sort of highlighting how for a lot of folks that come from, Again, from conservative fundamentalist, whether it's within Christianity or another tradition, another religious uh, practice altogether, things like repentance, forgiveness, repair, they are weaponized by the people who hold the power. So sometimes those things take a long time to to sort of access or mm-hmm. or be able to talk about again, just because of the way it may activate someone's trauma responses. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm certainly sensitive to that, to that myself. And also specifically within Christian, within white evangelicalism, things like the word reconciliation have also been sort of misused, not sort of, they have been misused. They were used, especially in what a lot of religious scholars call like the, the colorblind period following the civil rights movement. Up until about the 90s when it sort of tapered off, but it was, you know, there were many of these reconciliation, called reconciliation things between white Christians and black Christians over over slavery, over Jim Crow, over the systemic racism that exists in our country, as well as, you know, there are other examples of this, but that's one of the more well-known ones. I think one of the things for people like like myself who who exit these things we we sort of sit with what we used to believe and have you know have had experiences that maybe the idea of reconciliation isn't desirable with certain people but there is still some work that could benefit us internally and personally with regard to processing the trauma and one of the things you lay out is that there are multiple hebrew words for forgiveness and there are two that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think that in particular would be really valuable for 
this audience to hear and why why even though forgiveness itself is a loaded term for so many of us because because of these factors that i've mentioned there is still value in per, pursuing and doing the sort of deep work that whether it takes place in a spiritual context or not is transformational in in a very real sense of the word so could you talk a little bit about those two terms of forgiveness and sort of how you how you present even the idea of whether forgiveness is necessarily appropriate in, in a given context sure so there are indeed two primary words that get used that are translated often as forgiveness. One is mechila, which is like a closing of the books. Like, okay, you stole from me, you returned the money, you seem sincere in your processing of what you did. I don't think you're going to steal from anybody else. Fine. We're good. We're done here. Like, get out of here. Get out of my face. And by the way, reconciliation is not presumed in any of this framework. The idea that we would ever be friends again or ever have to talk to each other is not presumed in any of this repentance framework anywhere. We're just, so just make that clear. But it's like, fine, we're done. Books closed. Good. We're done. Mechila. And then there's slicha, which is like more of the like open, loving, empathetic, warm-hearted, like the, you know, whole person that is me sees the whole person that is you. And I see, you know, I see how much you are are doing this work and really, you know, like endeavoring and we're connecting and na na na. Predominantly, the literature on repentance deals with mechila. Like we're not, we're not out having a warm, fuzzy conversation here. <laughs> Yeah, like, we yeah. don't care. <laughs> There's no warm fuzzies. We are talking about like you know, did did you do the work enough for me to say okay, we're done. Just get out of here. We're closing the books. And so several things. Number one, there's we don't even begin to talk about forgiveness in any context if the person has not done the repentance work. The idea that you would, I mean, like you can always forgive if you want right? Like, great, that's your business. Do whatever you want. If it's part of your healing process, if you feel like it, great. You know, if they haven't done the repentance work, you can do whatever you want, but you don't owe them anything, right? And number two, somebody comes to you and is doing very sincere, very thoughtful repentance work. Like it really like, and not like sleazy, like, you know, my publicist put a confession on Instagram, like, but like really like meaningful, heartfelt apology, heartfelt amends, real confession. And they come to you, A, they're like, you know, Maimonides is like, well, if the harm person who was harmed doesn't forgive them right away, then you come back with, you know, a group of people to make sure you're coming correct. And they like, you know, the person is coming back like four different times to apologize. Like there's no presumption that the victim is forgiving right away. So that's number two. Number three, the person who was caused the harm, the harm doer, can, like, they are obligated to come back, like, four times function uh, total, and then they are off the hook vis-a-vis -vis apologizing and can go talk to God on Yom Kippur. If they've done a good job and you still haven't forgiven them, they are, they're done and can go talk to God, meaning that 
you their repentance work is not dependent on your forgiveness in any way whatsoever. This mm -hmm. you have to forgive me so that I can go be free and exempt, like doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It's their business. It's their like they don't they don't you don't owe them anything. So this idea of this, like pressuring victims to forgive because they need you to forgive is it's it's crap. Forgiveness is your business as the victim. So that's num that's another thing. Really important. The literature basically like for normal kinds of harm, the literature is is says like, you know, kind of don't be petty. Don't like check yourself. Like if you're not forgiving because you're, you know, are you like like lording your harm over them? Are you being petty? Are you like, what's going on that you're refusing to just, just close the books and just say like, you've been coming back really sincerely and you're refusing to forgive. Like what, what is going on with you that you're holding on? Check yourself. There's some internal work. This is not good for you spiritually. And so the literature kind of wants to push you to figure that out. But. There are other elsewhere in Jewish literature, and I think Maimonides presumes this, even though he says, doesn't say explicitly, but the Jerusalem Talmud says, basically, if you are harmed in a way that can never be fixed, you are harmed in a way that can never be healed, like permanent, like real trauma, like mm -hmm. real harm, you are never obligated to forgive. Okay? You don't ever have to forgive your abuser. You don't ever have to forgive your abuser. So, I mean, you can, and maybe you'll get there organically as a part of your process someday. Maybe you tell them, maybe you don't, whatever, that's your choice. You don't have to. You're off the hook. And you're free. Just, you don't have to. And they can come back a zillion times, and you can just tell them to bug off if, and if they're your, your abuser and they're darkening your door they're not doing it right anyway because you probably don't want to see them and so they are not being victim centric they're harm if they're harming you by showing up they're doing it wrong so like every single choice they make should be victim centric if they're calling you at 1 a.m to apologize they are doing it wrong if they're showing up without checking carefully to see if your call is their call is welcome and that harm was serious like they're doing it wrong. So forgiveness and repentance are different tracks. And the, everybody needs to keep their eyes on their own chest. The person who caused harm needs to clean up their own mess. And the person who was harmed needs to care for their own needs. And nobody ever, ever, ever should pressure a victim to forgive. And someone who was hurt will do their work and if that forgiveness comes and the books are ready to close you'll know yeah that's uh that's so valuable and helpful i think for honestly for uh, a lot of people to to recognize that that was this this continued sort of repetition on how invested those who had done harm um you know need to be in order to change and and giving the space necessary to the person who was harmed that's such a necessary distinction and it's absolutely i what i appreciate about this 
being in a book form, the thing I like about books is that, you know, they, they work on a different track than like social media, which is so fast. And, and, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't encourage this type of work. So I'm really, really glad that you took the time to write this book, to share it. Um, because I think it will resonate with a lot of people who need to figure who need to understand this for their own healing, as well as understanding uh, how they contributed to things, you know, just people born into privilege, like, like me, like understanding how to disrupt those things or how to understand our role in harm and reducing that. So I'm very thankful that, that this book will be on the world. It was wonderful to read it and to have the privilege to talk to you about it. We didn't even touch on some of the other things that <laughs> there are other aspects of nations and institutions that we we sort of focused more on these interpersonal things, but you tackle that in the book as well. And there's just a lot to, to glean from it. Uh, and um, as I mentioned at the top of the interview, it's something I'm going to sit with for a while and I'm very thankful for it. And I'm glad that you shared this with the world. So if you could just let folks know where they can find you online or and where they can find the book, all that other fun stuff to mention here at the end. I am at DanyaRuttenberg.net. The book is at OnRepentance.com, can be purchased in all of the formats at all of the places people buy things, except Amazon and Audible are having some sort of spat so you can get the audio version at libro fm or apple or google or other places where people buy audiobooks but um i don't know there's some there's Wild. some sort of like corporate corporations yelling at each other situation there and they have they're they're both owned by amazon so that's really weird <laughs> i don't understand i don't pretend to understand but that's a thing um so that is happening and you know I'm on the social medias at all of the places and, well, and oh and the Substack. Oh, yes, and life, yes. life is a sacred text dot substack dot com for at some point we will go back to the you know social justice Bible investigation, you know, highly progressive, extremely everybody inclusive, including you don't have to believe in or like God in order to geek out or whatever. But right now we're doing some sort of <laughs> some sort of interlude of some some variety. So <laughs> that's fair. I don't know, I'd... I'm not totally sure what's happening right now, but we are we yeah. are interluding um <laughs> with other weird stories and and archival mysteries and things. Awesome. Awesome. And again, definitely follow her on Twitter if you're a Twitter user. I'll drop all those things in the show notes. Uh, Rabbi Ruttenberg, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much.